of us here are concerned about the work of God. We think about the work of God. That has been a part of our lives for many of us uh, for decades. I'd like to pose a question to you in terms of what is really necessary to successfully complete God's work. Now, down through time, as we look through the pages of Scripture, we certainly see that God has had a work. God has had things that He raised up His servants to do down through time. I'd like to take you back in history, back to a time in the closing years of the kingdom of Judah. Josiah was the last righteous king of Judah. He was fatally wounded in a battle with the Egyptians. Babylonians were threatening to come in and conquer that area, and there was a lot of turmoil. Josiah died. His son came to the throne, was there just a matter very short time, about three months, and the Egyptians deposed him and set up another of his sons as king. And time went by. From the time of Josiah's death until the first invasion of the Babylonians, till the invasion of King Nebuchadnezzar was a relatively short time, just a matter of perhaps about three years or so, and three to four years. And Nebuchadnezzar came in and he laid siege and conquered that area, added Judah to his empire. A little time went by, several more years, and in the course of that, Nebuchadnezzar came back. Now, when he conquered Judah the first time, he deported several of the particularly sons from the leading families, Daniel, we know from the book of Daniel, was in that original deportation. Well, Nebuchadnezzar came back several years later, and uh, he was uh, unhappy with the way things had been going and the way that the king that was on the throne had been uh, carrying out his responsibilities toward Babylon. So Nebuchadnezzar took the king. Uh, Jehoiakim took him captive to Babylon and placed yet another of the sons of Josiah, Zedekiah, who was actually the uncle of Jehoiakim. He placed Zedekiah on the throne. And that continued on for about ten years, and Nebuchadnezzar then came back the third time. Now, the second time, he also deported captives and took a number. Ezekiel was in that second wave. But when he came back the third time, he broke down the walls of the city, burned the temple of Solomon, absolutely destroyed the city. And this time, multiple tens of thousands of people were taken into captivity. The... Jewish population was greatly diminished. There were a few people left behind, primarily those who were sort of the poor people of the land and of the rural areas. Jerusalem was left a ruin, a wreck. Now, the great temple that David had planned for, that Solomon had built, was was absolutely destroyed. Decades passed. In fact, almost five decades passed. Nebuchadnezzar had died, and we come to 539 B.C. And in 539, Babylon itself fell. Cyrus the Great, king of Persia, 
had laid siege to the city of Babylon, and in the fall of 539, Babylon fell. And the empire of the Medes and the Persians was now set up. Well, a short time later, Cyrus, king of Persia, issued a decree. And that particular decree we read in Ezra chapter 1. Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Eternal by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Eternal stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and put it also in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the eternal God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he's charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the eternal God of Israel. Then he went on to say that whoever remained behind in Babylon could send money. They, he didn't order them to leave Babylon and go to Jerusalem. He gave permission. He said, all who wish to go up, who wish to go back to Jerusalem, who wish to rebuild the city, who wish to rebuild the temple, are free to go. And those of you who wish to remain behind, you can send money and you can contribute to the cause. Now, it's very interesting because, you know, for decades, the Jews in Babylonian captivity, and that's what they called it, the Jews had lamented the destruction of Jerusalem. They had lamented the destruction of the temple. Throughout this period of time, they had voluntarily taken it upon themselves to fast on the day that was the ninth day of the fifth month, month of Ab. They read the book of Lamentation, written by Jeremiah. And they had lamented the destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple. But you know something else had happened. All the while they went through that and talked about, oh, next year in Jerusalem, oh, that we could rebuild the temple. Something else had also happened. You see, decades had passed. In fact, about seven decades had passed since Nebuchadnezzar's first invasion. About five decades had passed since the destruction of the temple. Now, in that number of years, people have had families. Children have grown up in Babylon. They have married. They, in turn, have had children. Those children have grown up. So we have many people, certainly young adults, who are already two generations removed from Jerusalem and from Judah. Now, though they called it Babylonian captivity, the Jews were settled in various cities and villages around. They were free to engage in, in commerce and trade. There were a number of them who had become quite prosperous. So it's interesting, when Cyrus issued his decree, the Jews had been praying for this for decades, it's very interesting because when you go through Ezra chapter 2, do you know how many Jews returned to Judah when they were finally free to do so? And Cyrus said, whosoever there is among you who wants to go up, let him go up. Whose heart is in doing the work? Well, 
Ezra 2, verse 64, says the whole congregation together was 42,360. Out of hundreds of thousands of Jews who were in Babylon, they finally mustered 42,000 who were actually ready to go. Now, everybody had thought it was a great idea. Yeah, we ought to rebuild Jerusalem. Oh, that we could rebuild Jerusalem. Lament for the destruction of the temple. But you see, it was disruptive to people's life. That meant you had to leave your business behind. You had to leave and and go to a place where you hadn't been for decades. And as we read the story, we'll find there's some older people who went, uh, some who had memory of, of the Temple of Solomon. But when you understand the Temple of Solomon had been destroyed 50 years ago at the time they went back, that meant that virtually anyone who had any memory of the Temple of Solomon would have at the minimum, been in their 60s. Who could really remember the way it looked and had much memory about it. So there were some older folks who went back, and there were some younger, but it was a very small group. Now, that tells us something to begin with, uh, that it's easy sometimes for people to talk about something. Go through, and in the book of Ezra, you find out of the 24 courses of the priests, there were only four of the priestly courses that actually returned to Jerusalem at this time. Zerubbabel, who was of the royal family of Judah, he was a grandson of uh, King Jehoiakim, whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken captive about 597. Zerubbabel was actually appointed governor by Cyrus and was allowed to lead the delegation of Jews to go back. But when they got everybody together, it was a pretty small And they came back. Joshua, the high priest, who was a descendant, of course, of the last high priest to have served there. And you can go through chapter 2 of the book of Ezra, and it gives the specific numbers of the various groups. But when it totals it up, uh, we're looking at under 50,000 people, counting servants, that went back. Well, they came, and we're told that after they arrived... In Ezra chapter 3, when the seventh month was come, the children of Israel were in the cities, and the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem, understand, is a ruined city. The walls have been broken down. Most of the buildings have been destroyed or burned. The temple has been burned. Jerusalem is a ruin. Of the less than 50,000 people who returned... Only a handful settled right there around Jerusalem. In fact, the number was so small that you find a number of years later, several decades later, under Governor Nehemiah, he insisted in order to sort of populate Jerusalem that 10% of the population, they cast lots, and they insisted that some people move in from the countryside to sort of make a city of decent size. And even then, it was only a very small town of just a few thousand people. So there were scarcely anyone right there in Jerusalem at this time. These less than 50,000 people were sort of scattered out there in the surrounding towns and villages. And when the seventh month was come, this, of course, is the month of the fall festivals, they were gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. And Joshua, 
who was the son of Jehoshadak. He was the high priest. And the other priests with him, along with Zerubbabel, they had built an altar to the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings, as it is stipulated in the law of Moses. They set the altar upon its bases. Verse 3, For fear was upon them because of the people of those countries. And they offered burnt offerings unto the eternal. And they kept the Feast of Tabernacles. It was, we're told in verse 6, from the first day of the seventh month that they began to offer the burnt offerings unto the eternal. The foundation of the temple of the eternal was not yet laid. So they had returned, and then they all came there to Jerusalem uh, for the fall festival season. And they gathered together, and they set the altar up. And on the first day of the seventh month, the Feast of Trumpets, they began offering the burnt offerings on the altar. The temple wasn't built. In fact, the foundation for it wasn't even laid. There was simply an altar that was consecrated. And they began then the, the reinstitution of the sacrifices. They kept the Feast of Tabernacles. They observed these fall festivals. And it was the first time there that they had been able to do so in Jerusalem for many decades. Now, part of what was in their mind, we're told in verse 3, fear was upon them because of the people of those countries. They had come back, and you know when Jerusalem fell, if you read the story, you find that there were many neighbors around who rejoiced in Jerusalem's fall. Tyre, for instance, which was a great commercial city on the seacoast, had rejoiced at the fall of Jerusalem. They had anticipated the wealth that they would be able to loot and the things they would be able to get. The Edomites nearby, they rejoiced at the fall of Jerusalem. So you had a lot of people there who had not been sorry to see the Jews go. And they weren't very happy to see them come back. So the people were back. You know, you, you look at it as it sort of funnels down. To begin with, you've got all these hundreds of thousands of people who are talking about reviving the work. And then it's time to put up or shut up. Okay, everyone that wants to return, go. Well, there's not a whole lot of hands that come up at that point. Now they come back, and there's the devastation. There is, is an area that has been overgrown. You can just imagine uh, how farms have gone to rack and ruin, how much of the land has been very underpopulated. Uh, so you've had... Uh, uh, you know, multiplication of, of let's say, wild animals. Uh, you've had towns and villages that have been overgrown, houses and farms uh, that have been wrecked. Uh, Jerusalem itself is the most devastated place. And they're just sort of overwhelmed by the magnitude of what lies in front of them. And they're a little bit intimidated by the nations around, the various peoples around who are uh, jealous, who are envious, who are just not very happy to have these folks coming back and claiming their land. So they began offering the sacrifices on the Feast of Trumpets of the first year they had returned. Now we're told in verse 8, in the second year of their coming unto the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month began Zerubbabel and those with him, to set forward the work of the house of the eternal. So now a number of months more have gone by, and we're into the second month, which is 
let's say, the month after the Passover season. And it's now they have made preparation and they're going to begin the rebuilding of the temple. And so Zerubbabel and Joshua and the priests and the others with them, uh, they began this uh, here. And we're told in verse 10, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they sent the priests in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites and all the sons of Asaph to praise the Eternal using the Psalms of David in accordance with the way that David had set up and structured the Levitical choir. They sang together by course in praising and giving thanks unto the Eternal because He's good. All the people shouted with a great shout. But we find that there were those there, some of the older people, particularly from the priestly and Levitical families, who remembered the old temple the temple of Solomon. And you know, on the one hand, it was a, a wonderful thing to see the, the temple now beginning to be rebuilt. But on the other hand, it was for some of these a very sad occasion because what they saw was something that was going to shape up to be a far smaller, far less grand building. You know, think about it. David was the wealthiest of kings in terms of the way God had blessed him in amassing an empire. Uh, king Solomon was, was blessed with great wealth. The temple of Solomon represented the best that a prosperous nation could do. It represented the very best that King David, who had given generously, and you can go and go through the details and look at all of the gold and all of the things that he had and that Solomon had done and the, ver the people had been invited to participate. The temple of Solomon represented the pinnacle of, of the best that Israel at its height could do. Now, you've got a people who are impoverished a people who have returned from captivity, a people who are living in a land where they're sort of uh, trying to build up farms and build up towns from scratch. And the best that they could do was far, far less than what David and Solomon had been able to do. And so there were those, as they looked at the new foundations being laid, they looked at the size, they looked at some of the materials that had been gathered, and they just, uh, they were really overwhelmed, felt grief-stricken at, at the comparison. And now that was, that's not by any means the end of the story, because in chapter 4 of the book of Ezra, in verse 1, now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of the captivity built the temple, of the eternal God of Israel. They came to Zerubbabel and to the chief of the fathers, and they said, Let us build with you. We seek your God just like you do. We sacrifice to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Asher, who brought us here. They had, these were the Samaritans, and they had been brought into the land. Esarhaddon reigned, uh, uh, came to the throne actually about 40 years after the fall of Samaria, the deportation of the Israelites took time and the bringing in of these other peoples took time. But they had been there now for quite a number of decades. And notice what their response was. They said, 
Why, we serve God just like you do. We worship the same God you do. Yet, what are we told? They were adversaries. That's what God labeled them. God says they're enemies, they're adversaries. But you know, an adversary doesn't always come with a frontal attack, does he? Someone can be an adversary, and he doesn't necessarily proclaim himself as an adversary. These folks who were adversaries came and said, why, we're your friends. We just want to help out. Zerubbabel, of course, knew who they were, and he knew what they did. You can go back and read the story in 2 Kings 17. I won't turn to it for the sake of time. But you read that these people in Samaria were basically of Babylonian extraction. They had been brought to the depopulated areas of northern Israel, had settled in. They brought with them the idols and the idol worship from back in Babylon and surrounding cities. They simply attached God's name to it. They kept the same old paganism, and yet they called it by the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Well, that's not acceptable. You can't worship God just however you decide to worship Him. You can't look around at the pagans and say, well, we'll take their ideas and, and we'll call it by a new name. We won't call it Saturnalia anymore. We'll call it Christmas. That makes it okay. No, God sets the pattern. You and I are called upon to worship the Creator in spirit and in truth. To worship Him from the heart and to worship Him according to the pattern that He has set. So Zerubbabel recognized these folks for what they were. And he said, you don't have any part with us in this. We're going to rebuild it ourselves just like Cyrus, king of Persia, told us to. Now... What was the result? Verse 4, Then the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah and troubled them in building. And they hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, to the reign of King Darius. You see, they wanted to come in and be part of it. Well, if they had been part of it, God certainly wouldn't have blessed it because they would have brought in their corrupt pagan ideas sort of baptized paganism. That's what the Samaritans had. They had just taken pagan customs and concepts and sort of christened them and attached the name of the God of Israel to them. Zerubbabel would not accept that. He recognized these people for what they were. And so now they show their true colors. They began to stir up trouble. And they weakened the hands of the people. They discouraged them. They undoubtedly spread rumors and they did various things and said various things. And they even hired counselors against them and frustrated them in their purpose. That was, you know, in fact, they hired lawyers and took them to court. Just sort of dragged the thing out for years. Made accusations and got trouble stirred up. May, you could go through and read. It talks about some of the accusations they sent back to the Persian court. You know, anybody can accuse anyone of anything. Proving it is a totally different matter. They didn't have to prove it. All they had to do was just stir up trouble and, and spread rumors and make accusations, and they got difficulty. Well, now, the consequence of this, verse 24, then ceased the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. So it ceased under the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. 
Several years went by. The work ceased. Then, chapter 5, verse 1, Then the prophets, Haggai the prophet, and Zechariah the son of Edo, prophesied unto the Jews which were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the Lord God of Israel. Then rose up Zerubbabel and Joshua, and they began to build once more the house of God which is at Jerusalem. And with them were the prophets of God helping them. Now, with that in mind, that is a backdrop. Let's turn back to the book of Haggai. And uh, Haggai opens in Haggai 1, verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai. So, Haggai 1, 1 picks up the story exactly where we left off in Ezra chapter 5. Trouble has been stirred up. People have been discouraged. The work on the temple has ceased. People have sort of scattered to their own devices. Years have gone by. Haggai then came with a message to Zerubbabel and the others. And he quotes God in verse 2 of Haggai 1. Thus speaks the Eternal of hosts, saying... This people say, the time is not come, the time that the eternal's house should be built. You see, people had quit doing the work, and they now had excuses. They said, obviously, it's not time to build a temple. It's, it's not time to do the work. Now, consider, who are the ones making the excuses? These are the ones that had left Babylon and come back. So you had only a handful that had actually come back. And they came back and they were uh, the ones who had enough zeal to want to inconvenience themselves, leave behind Babylon, come to Judah, rebuild. They got there. But you know what happened? They found there were problems and difficulties and time dragged on longer than they expected. Have you ever noticed how that sometimes happens? Things happen. Things come into the mix. Things drag out. You know, it's important for us to understand, you and I are not going to write the script, then sort of hand it to God and expect Him to read His lines. Doesn't work that way. Doesn't work that way. They expected things to go differently. But there were problems. There was discouragement. There was frustration. Uh, there were adversaries. Now, you know, God could have struck the adversaries dead, but God allowed these adversaries to stir up trouble. He allowed them to make false accusation to the Persian court. This thing had dragged on for years. People had become discouraged. Now God's prophet comes along. Years have passed. And he says, you know, God says, this people say, well, it's just not time yet. Well, here's what Haggai asked them, verse 4, in the name of God. Haggai asked them, is it time for you? You know, you people who say it's not time to build God's house. Is it time for you to dwell in your sealed houses and this house lie waste? Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you don't have enough. You drink, but you're not filled. You know, you have put your efforts into trying to rebuild the prosperity of the land. 
But in the course of trying to rebuild the prosperity of the land, you've neglected what should have been first and foremost, and that is rebuilding the work of God, rebuilding the house of God. It's not time to build God's house, but they certainly thought it was time to build their own. They weren't able to get around to doing the work, but they could sort of work on their house. And God said, have you noticed that you can't quite seem to get ahead? Doesn't matter how hard you work in the field. Doesn't matter what all you do. You never can quite seem to get ahead. You know why? Well, you haven't applied what is perhaps the most fundamental principle throughout all the Scriptures. Seek you first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. I think one of the simplest things to demonstrate from Genesis to Revelation is the fact that nobody ever gets really ahead by putting God last. You just don't get ahead by putting God last. You ever notice that if you try in your day to get all the things done and to get all your work and get everything done, and when you get it all finished, then you're going to have time to sit down and pray and study. You ever notice that you run out of day before you run out of work? You know, if you sit down and you're going to try to pay all your bills and take care of all your financial obligations, and then once you get everything tended to, then you're going to, then you're going to tithe and give offerings to God. Work. God has to come first. If you fit God in first, if God comes first, everything else fits. You start your day off with God and the rest of the day fits. You start off, you know, as Solomon wrote in Proverbs, about honor the Lord with the first fruits of your increase. You know, put God first. So Haggai told them, he said, you know, you've been making excuses. Because there were difficulties, there were legitimate obstacles that came up, but you've been making excuses, you found time to do your things, but not God's things. Now, thus says the Eternal, verse 7, consider your ways, go up to the mountains, bring wood and build a house. And I'll take pleasure in it. And I will be glorified. You looked for much and it came to little. When you brought it home, I blew on it. Just sort of blew it away, God says. Why? Why would I do that? Because of my house that is waste and you run every man to his own house. Your priorities are wrong. You're trying to take care of yourself. You came back from Babylon. To rebuild my house. You came back from Babylon to do the work. But you let yourself get discouraged. You became distracted. Became preoccupied with this and that and all the other things. Get your priorities straight. So, God goes on to tell them. Where we're told that. In verse 14. The Eternal stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, stirred up the spirit of the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord. They began this in the 24th day of the sixth month, in the second year of Darius, just shortly before the Feast of Trumpets, just about a week before. And so, chapter 2, verse 1 of Haggai, the seventh month, the 21st day of the month. This is right at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, 
came the word of the Lord by the prophet Haggai, saying, Speak unto Zerubbabel and unto Joshua and unto the people, and say, verse 3, Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? How do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? You know, those few among you, now on into their 70s and 80s, who remembered the first house, Haggai asked them the question. He said, what does this look like? How do you like this by comparison? Well, by comparison, it is nothing. Haggai said that. He told them, he said, now be strong, Zerubbabel, be strong, Joshua, be strong, people of the land. For thus says the Eternal, you know, be strong and work. End of verse 4, for I'm with you. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Don't fear. Thus says the Eternal of hosts, yet once it is a little while. And I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I'll shake all nations. And the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Eternal of hosts. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, says the Lord. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace. Now, I want you to think about that for a few minutes. The second temple, the temple of Zerubbabel, certainly did not have the grandeur and the glory of Solomon's temple. But there were other things it didn't have. You know, put, think about it a little bit as they're preparing here for the dedication. When you read in the in the Torah, about the dedication of the tabernacle. You read in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers about the building of the tabernacle and the dedication of the tabernacle. Do you remember what happened? When they set up the tabernacle, fire miraculously shot out from inside the Holy of Holies, from the Ark of the Covenant, shot out and ignited the sacrifice on the altar miraculously, the fire of the altar was ignited. We're told that the glory of God coming out from the Holy of Holies so filled the tabernacle that the priest and even Moses himself had to move back. It was absolutely overwhelming. What a remarkable thing. Now, you go on through the story and you find centuries later when the temple was dedicated by Solomon. And this time, fire came from heaven. Uh, this just great swoosh of fire, whoom, you know, right down on the altar, and the entire sacrifice went up in flames, and the glory of God filled the temple so that the priests couldn't even come in close to minister. Absolutely overwhelming. We're told all the people fell on their faces before the Lord. You better believe they did. Scared them half to death. You can just imagine. You know, this great column of fire comes down from heaven and the glory of God just permeates, you know, perhaps sort of like a glowing vapor or something. It, it pictures it as a cloud, and yet there seems to have been light emanating from it. It was just absolutely overwhelming. It was uh, frightening to those involved. A great miraculous event 
that showed the presence of God in the tabernacle, that showed the presence of God in the temple. If you go through the book of Ezekiel, you'll find that in one of Ezekiel's visions, and Ezekiel was writing prior to the destruction of Jerusalem, he went into captivity in the time of King Jehoiakim's captivity, and he was writing this particular prophecy just a short time, few years about three or four prior to the actual destruction of the temple by Nebuchadnezzar. And in the vision, Ezekiel saw the glory of God there in the temple. He saw the glory of God lift up and remove from the holy place and come to the threshold of the door of the temple, and then he saw it remove from the threshold of the temple and depart from the temple. Now, the glory of God had departed from the temple. And Nebuchadnezzar came in within a short time and he destroyed it and laid it waste. Now, the people of Zerubbabel's day, the people to whom Haggai was speaking, brethren, they were just as familiar, they were more familiar with some of those stories than you and I are. That had been on their mind. They had heard those stories. They had read those things. And yet, as you read the story in Ezra and Nehemiah and Haggai and Zechariah, you find that when the second temple was dedicated, there was no miraculous fire that consumed the offering. There was no Shekinah glory that filled the temple. Can you imagine the sense of discouragement that people must have felt? as they saw a building far less grand, far smaller, far less impressive, no great miraculous outpouring that demonstrated the presence of God. In fact, in the second temple, the Holy of Holies was empty. There was no Ark of the Covenant. It was just an empty room. Haggai told them something here. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet a little while, Yet a little while, and I'm going to shake the heavens, I'm going to shake the earth, the sea, the dry land, and I'm going to shake all nations. The desire of all nations shall come, and I'm going to fill this house with glory. I'm going to fill this house with glory. This house that we're here dedicating. I'm going to fill this house with glory, and the glory of this latter house is going to be greater than the glory of the former. It's going to dwarf the glory of Solomon's temple. You know, something far greater, something far greater than a down, you know, an outpouring of fire or the, the Shekinah glory. Just hold your spot there and turn back to the book of John, chapter 1. John chapter 1 opens, of course, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him there was not anything made that was made. And Him was life, and the life was the light of men. We come on down to verse 14, and we're told, The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. 
the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. It wasn't simply the Shekinah glory that came into the second temple. It was the Word, the one who was in the beginning with God, who was God, the one who spoke, and the heavens and earth came into existence, the one who spoke and the sea and the dry land separated, the one who said, let there be light, and there was light, the one who breathed the breath of life into Adam, the first man, the Word who was with God, who was God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. You know, Jesus said, a greater, you, you know, you, you honor the temple, a greater than the temple is here. Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, the Word who became flesh, His glory. You see, the temple, the second temple, refurbished by Herod, yes, but the second temple, the fulfillment of Haggai too. I'm going to fill this house with glory. I'm going to fill this house with glory, and the glory of this latter house is going to be greater than the glory of the former. Because Jesus Christ, the Word, God in the flesh is going, this is the place He's going to come. He's going to come, He's going to teach, He's going to perform miracles. You see, He says that in this place will I give peace. Well, what did Jesus Christ preach? You know, we're told in uh, Acts 10, verse 31... Speaking of Jesus Christ, the word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ, He's Lord of all. This word, I say, which you, which was published throughout all Judea, began from Galilee after the baptism that John preached. Jesus Christ came proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God, the only way to peace. So here's Haggai. And he's pointing the people towards something. You see, do you live your life based on what you see with your eyes? Or do you walk by faith? They had become discouraged. They had drawn back. Because what they saw were difficulties. What they saw was that things were taking longer than they had ever imagined. What they saw seemed awfully tiny, awfully small, awfully insignificant by comparison to what they could remember. And what they could remember, of course, was not nearly Israel at its height. But what they could remember was far grander. Now, let's look on a little further. If you just turn over a page or two in your Bible, you come to the book of Zechariah. Now, if you notice, Haggai opens in Haggai 1.1 in the second year of Darius in the sixth month. Zechariah opens in Zechariah 1.1 in the eighth month in the second year of Darius. So Zechariah and Haggai are contemporary. And Zechariah begins writing two months after Haggai. And Zechariah is reinforcing the message that Haggai gave. And in Zechariah 1.3, Therefore, say unto them, Haggai was told, Thus says the Eternal of hosts, Turn you unto me, says the Eternal of hosts, and I will turn unto you. Turn to me and I'll turn to you. Don't be like your fathers, unto whom the former prophets cried. 
You know, don't, don't act like they did. Now, if you come on down to verse 7, you'll find we pick up the story just a short time later, about, uh, about three months later, in the 24th day of the 11th month in the second year of Darius. Now, Haggai had made the statement at the time of the Feast of Tabernacles in Haggai 2, 2, yet once a little while, and I'm going to shake all nations. Now, with that as a backdrop, here we come on down from the Feast of Tabernacles just a short time later, about four months after Haggai had spoken those words. Uh, Zechariah is prophesying, and he sees a vision at night in vision. Recorded in verse 8, he saw a man sitting on a red horse, and he was standing among the myrtle trees that were there in the valley. And he saw various horses. In fact, as you look, come on down, you find there were four horses that are mentioned here. And Zechariah said in verse 9, what are these? He looks down there in the valley and he sees these, uh, uh, these four horses. And uh, he's a little perplexed. He, he knows this symbolizes something. He's not sure what. And, he's, and the angel said, well, here, I'll show you. And the man that stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, Oh, you're looking at these four horses and these four horsemen. These are they whom the Eternal has sent to walk to and fro through the earth. They're God's messengers. They're going to and fro. And they answered the angel of the Lord that stood among the myrtle trees, and they said, Well, we have. We've been walking up and down, walking to and fro through the earth. And behold, all the earth sits still and is at rest. Everything's pretty quiet. And the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against whom you had indignation these 70 years? See, Haggai had said just a matter of about four months earlier, yet a little while and I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I'm going to shake all nations. The desire of all nations shall come. Four months down the road, here's Zechariah, he sees a vision, he sees these angelic messengers. And they say, well, we've been going everywhere, we've been all over. And they said, well, what's the message? Said, well, everything's quiet. Heard of all quiet on the western front? Well, it was all quiet on the western front, the eastern front, and the northern front, and the southern front. Four months had passed, God hadn't shaken all nations. In fact, things were pretty quiet. Everything seemed settled in. Even the angels said, Oh, Lord, how long are things going to continue on this way? How long are you? is it going to be before you really restore? Because realize, as the temple was taking shape, the city of Jerusalem was still desolate. The walls were broken down. There were a few hundred, maybe at most, uh, you know, a couple of thousand inhabitants. Very sparse. Because you find later on, Nehemiah had to insist and bring back uh, several thousand people to Jerusalem to sort of enhance the city. So what he saw was the earth sitting still. How long? The angel communed with me, verse 14, and said, You say, you tell everyone that God says, I'm jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. And I'm sore displeased with the nations that are at ease. Now, they're all comfortable. They're all settled in. Life's going on. They're happy. 
I'm returned to Jerusalem, verse 16, with mercies. My house shall be built. God says, I'm going to do that. The Lord, verse 17, shall yet comfort Zion, shall yet choose Jerusalem. As you come on down into chapter 2 and verse 4, the angel told Zechariah, and said unto him, Run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls for the multitude of men and cattle. God says, I'm going to be like a wall of fire round about. Now, verse 11, Many nations will be joined to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people, and I'll dwell in the midst of you. You'll know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto you, and the Lord shall inherit Judah and his portion, and the Holy Land shall choose Jerusalem again. The point is, Haggai and Zechariah preached a message of faith. Based on what you could see, there was no reason to conclude that any of these things were going to happen. What you saw was a city that was devastated. The walls were broken down. There were only a few sparse inhabitants scattered around and some uh, maybe houses that had been repaired a little bit. Zechariah said, you know what? The time is going to come. This city is going to be so filled with people, they're going to spread out beyond the walls. The walls won't even be able to contain the people. It'll be inhabited like a town without walls for the multitude of men and cattle. It's going to be teeming with population, and God is going to be protecting it. Right now, here they were, even though they were allowed to rebuild the temple, they were still a part of the Persian Empire. They were intimidated by some of these neighboring peoples around. And yet the message of the prophets looked on down beyond that day, beyond that time. Yes, things may be quiet right now, but I'm going to shake all nations. Jesus Christ... Did come, but you know when God says yet once a little while. Now, how do you define a little while? Well, according to this context, God defined it as about half a millennium. It was over five hundred years into the future before Jesus Christ came. One interesting thing, by the way, in terms of the coming of the Messiah. The temple, that second temple, was destroyed by the Romans in 70 A.D. Haggai 2 is a proof that the Messiah had to come prior to the destruction of the second temple. Because Haggai said, I will fill this house with glory, and the glory of this house shall be greater than the glory of the former. And the only way that that occurred was because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into that temple. It's interesting, you read the story in the, in the Gospel of John. John opens and he points out uh, that, that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory. If you come right on down uh, into chapter 2, you find the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. He had been baptized by John the Baptist in the fall. He had gone into the wilderness, fasted 40 days. He had chosen his disciples. And then he appeared in Jerusalem just prior to Passover, the Passover of 28 A.D. And how did he appear? 
Well, if you read the story there in John chapter 2, uh, you find that he was fulfilling the prophecy of Malachi, that uh, who may abide the day of his coming. You know, he's going to be like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Because he walked into the temple in Jerusalem and he cleaned house. He overthrew the tables of the money changers. He cast out the money changers. He drove out these animals. You know, it's interesting if you look at the story, you find that the area where they had set up shop was in the outer courtyards of the temple, what was designated as the court of the Gentiles. And there were so many oxen that were lowing and sheep and goats that were bleating and doves that were cooing and fluttering their wings. You couldn't hear yourself think. So where were the Gentiles supposed to pray? The only place in the temple they could come was the court of the Gentiles. Christ said, it's written, my house, my father's house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. And that, of course, referred specifically to that area of the temple. My father's house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. You've made it a den of thieves. You see, they were so strict, so religious that they could not allow money that had pagan insignias and pagan inscriptions to go into the temple treasury. You come in there, you know, to buy an animal for sacrifice. Oh, no, we couldn't dare take that. Why, that's got, uh, you know, a pagan king's picture on it. It's got a pagan inscription. It's got little pagan notations. So we have the money changer here. You put your old pagan money in this box and we'll give you some good righteous money. We'll give you a temple shekel. Now, of course, it goes without saying, the temple shekel had considerably less silver in it than the pagan shekel. So then you have to ask who was really the pagan. Uh, so they were clipping the folks. The you know, first thing you had to do when you came into Jerusalem was you had to change your money out. And so they shortchanged you, gave you a temple shekel. Then you moved on and you had to pay their price for the sheep or the goat. Because remember, the priest, the, the sacrifice had to be without spot and without blemish. Who decided whether it was without spot and blemish? Well, the priest. So you bought your goat from him and you knew it passed. You got it at Joe's discount goat farm down the road. You looked long enough and hard enough, you could probably found something wrong with it. What kind of attitude do you think people must have been in as they came in there and the discouragement and the frustration? As they knew they were being taken advantage of, and yet this was the house of God. No wonder Jesus Christ was absolutely infuriated. He threw this stuff out, cleaned house. Then he proceeded to work miracles right there in the court of that temple. So much so. That as you read the story going on into John 3, Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, member of the Sanhedrin, came to Jesus privately by night there during the days of unleavened bread and said to him, Rabbi, we know, we members of the Sanhedrin, we rulers of the Jews, we know that you're a teacher sent from God, for no man can do the things you do except God be with him. Haggai said, I, yet a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I'm going to shake all nations. And I'm going to fill this house with glory. And the glory of this house is going to be greater than the glory of the former. From this house, I'm going to give peace. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, came into that house. He cleaned it up. He, he performed miracles. He proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom of God. 
what those people were doing in the days of Zerubbabel, they were preparing the way for the coming of the Messiah. What did it take to do the work of God? Well, you know, to start out with, you had to have a desire and a commitment because only those with a desire and a commitment left Babylon. But a desire to do the work of God isn't enough. Because what happens when you run into obstacles and difficulties and adversities? What happens when things drag on longer than you ever imagined? What happens when there are troubles? And you know, there, there are two kinds of troubles. And as you go through the Scriptures, you find that Satan has basically two primary tactics in terms of attacking the work of God. Sometimes he does it from without and sometimes he does it from within. And you find that story all the way down. Sometimes it's frontal assault to come on and to intimidate and to try to frighten and intimidate the people of God and cause them to back off. If that doesn't work, then you find trouble stirred up on the inside and you find adversaries and people discouraged and you find all of these difficulties and things that began to, to come along. And the hand of the people was weakened, we're told. The ones whose hand was weakened were the ones who had the desire to come back from Babylon. They are the ones that had the desire to rebuild the temple, but their hands were weakened. They became discouraged. They became frustrated. They turned inward and they focused on themselves and building their house and taking care of themselves. They focused on all of those things. It's easy to become self-centered. You ever notice that? You know, Easy to be concerned about ourselves, to be focused on ourselves. So the work got sidetracked. Takes a desire, but desire alone isn't enough. Haggai and Zechariah came along and they gave the people vision. Haggai and Zechariah said, you, you see right now, you see what surrounds us? Let me tell you what God's going to do. Right now, you see something that's pretty insignificant. You see something small. But I'm telling you something, the time's going to come when the glory of this latter house is going to exceed the glory of the former. I'm going to fill this house with glory. That's vision. They saw down through time. You read the story in Hebrews 11. You read of the men and women of faith. Read of individuals who saw what others did not see. That's what faith involves. They saw the promises afar off and were persuaded of them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims. They saw it far off and they grabbed hold. They were persuaded. They embraced those promises. We're told of Abraham that he looked for a city that has foundations whose maker and builder is God. Abraham looked for something. The men and women of faith, they saw the promises afar off. We're told of Moses in Hebrews 11 that when Moses came to maturity, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He had the title of prince of Egypt. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. You see, Moses wasn't intimidated by Pharaoh because Moses saw the invisible God. 
He endured as seeing Him who is invisible. Vision leads right into faith. You really can't have faith if you don't have vision. First, you've got to have a desire to do the work, but if all you have is a desire, you will be discouraged by the problems, the difficulties, the within and the without. Satan will always ensure that there are discouraging things that abound. You can guarantee that. So it's not enough to have desire. You've got to have a desire or you'll never leave Babylon. You know, as we look around at the people of God today, and you think of all the people that left Babylon spiritually. You know, you think of the magnitude and the scope of the work under Mr. Armstrong, and while, you know, on one level it was tiny, if you compare it with the churches of the world, yet when you look at the magnitude, scope of the millions of viewers and readers of the truth of God, there was a very significant impact. But, you know, that former house has been left desolate, hasn't it? Just as much as the burned-out ruins of the temple. Now, there are adversaries and there are difficulties, and I'm going to guarantee you that right on up until the end, there are going to be adversaries and difficulties. You see, in addition to desire, you've got to have vision. You've got to see what God sees. And not only do you have the vision to see it, you have the faith to believe it. Because with faith comes courage. If you really see God and you believe God, then you have the courage to go forward in the face of whatever adversity doesn't matter if the people of the land are trying to weaken the hands of those that were building. It didn't matter that the king said, let's just stop this for a while. God stirred up the spirit of those who began to catch the vision. You see, they didn't just see the building, they saw what God was going to do. Haggai told them, Zechariah told them, look at what God's going to do. I know that everything you see around you contradicts that. God says He's going to shake all nations. Even the angelic messengers have to admit, everything's pretty quiet right now. Everything's pretty smooth, pretty quiet. Nothing seems to be shaking right now. That's irrelevant. What you see right now is not nearly as important as what God says will happen. Because when God's time comes, things come together in an incredible way. It takes desire. It takes vision. It takes faith. And let me show you something else here. Let's go back to 1 Chronicles 29. King David was at the end of his life. And... He had gathered an assembly together, and he was presenting King Solomon before many of the leaders, and he was talking about the building of the temple. David, we're told, he says in in 1 Chronicles 29, 2, I have prepared with all my might for the house of my God. Verse 3, because I've set my affection to the house of my God. You remember the story David wanted 
to build the house of God. In the days of Haggai, the people wanted to build their own house, and the house of God laid waste. David told Nathan the prophet, he said, Look, I don't feel right. I'm living in a beautiful home, and the ark of God is in a tent. That, that seems backward to me. I, I really would like to build a house for God, something far more glorious than, than what I live in. Well, Nathan thought that sounded like a good idea. And he told David, he said, well, I'm sure God would would appreciate that. What do we find? Nathan hadn't even gotten out the door, and God said, Nathan, uh, you didn't talk to me before you told David. Uh, You need to go back and tell him that I appreciate his desire to build a house, but I'm not going to let him do it. His son will do it. Have you ever really set your heart on something? and then found out that you weren't going to be able to? You know, the natural human tendency is we get disappointed. Some people even get bitter or resentful because they don't get their way. You know what David's response was? And he certainly must have been disappointed on one level. And He said he set his affection on it. That's, he was just all excited about it. But David's response was, well, if I can't build it, can I help prepare for it? If I can't build it, that's okay. But can I help? Can I do something? And God, through Nathan, said, absolutely. You certainly can. David was a man after God's own heart. David didn't get sidetracked because he didn't get his way, because he got disappointed. David's heart was in building the temple. He set his affection on it. And if God said, no, I'm not going to let you do this, well, David said, well, what can I do? I'd like to contribute. I'd like to give everything you'll let me give. And God said, that's great. In fact, I'll let you prepare the plans for it. I'll let you do all the groundwork, but I won't let you actually build it. So notice David's attitude at the end of his life. He has done what God has allowed him to do. David is given, and the people responded to David's attitude, and they offered willingly, we're told in verse 9. And then David blessed the eternal before the congregation, verse 10. In verse 11, David praised God and he says, Lord, yours is the greatness, the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. All that's in the heavens or in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom. Verse 14, notice David's attitude. Who am I and what is my people that we should be able to offer so willingly after this sort? Of all, all things come of you and of your own have we given. David was thankful for the privilege of giving. What a total contrast to those who give begrudgingly. You talk about a cheerful giver. You read 1 Chronicles 29 and you understand part of the reason why David was a man after God's own heart. David loved God and he loved the things of God. David thanked God for the privilege of being able to give. And he said, Lord, everything I've got, you gave me. It's not like I'm giving you something that you have need of. But I'm so thankful for the opportunity to to contribute, to give. It was joy. What we find is not only a desire, as you look through Scripture, what's necessary. It's not only a desire to do the work. A vision to see what God has planned the faith to believe it, and the attitude of thankfulness and appreciation, the recognition that it is a privilege. 
It is a wonderful privilege for which we should continually thank God to be part of the work of God. I'm here to tell you something, brethren. Yet a little while, and he that shall come will come. He really will. God's going to shake all nations. He's going to shake the heavens and the earth. And you know what? He's going to fill this house with glory. You read in the book of Joel. You read in Joel chapter 2, and it talks about in the last days, I'll pour out my spirit. It talks about on the young men and the old men and the young women and the old women. I'm going to pour out my spirit before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Peter quoted part of that back in Acts 2 and applied it to the day of Pentecost and the outpouring of God's Holy Spirit and the miraculous things that occurred in the aftermath. But that was a type. The preparation for the second coming of Christ. But it's on God's time schedule. You and I are going to be confronted with problems and those who would seek to weaken our hands. Satan will stir up adversaries. We've seen these things and we shall see them. But if we maintain not only the desire to do the work, but we have the vision of what God is doing and what He will do, and the faith to believe it, And part of what it will enable us to endure, along with the vision and the faith, is the grateful, thankful attitude for the privilege of being part of it. Because, brethren, if we always count it a privilege and we're continually thankful to God as David was, we'll never turn loose of it. We'll never lose sight of it. No disappointment will ever dissuade us. Because we will recognize, we will know that he that shall come will come. He really will. And you and I have been chosen for the priceless privilege of being part of the work of God. Preparing the way for the return of Jesus Christ. And the beginning of the kingdom of God.